Amen, and welcome again to Sunday night service here at Moody Church as we are continuing tonight in our series, Wake Up Call through the book of Malachi. And so I would encourage you, if you uh, have a Bible or open the app on your phone to follow along with us as we're gonna be going through several verses tonight as we make our way through this book, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Well, Damian Lillard is known as a professional basketball player who is one of the most clutch players in the entire NBA. And so last year, near the end of the season, his team needed to win every game in order to get into the playoffs. They didn't have much room to spare. And so he went up for two free throws right near the end of a game with his team down one. He shot the first free throw and he missed. So now the best they could do was to tie. He shot the next free throw and he missed that one as well. And off to the side, cameras panned over and certainly he saw as people from the other team were laughing and high-fiving that this player had missed two free throws that could have put his team up at the end of the game. And he was upset by what he felt was a disrespect towards him. So in the next game out, his team won and he scored 51 points. And in the next game after that, that they needed to win to make the playoffs, he scored 61 points. And near the end of the game, as he hit a three-pointer, the camera zoomed in on him as he was yelling at the camera, put some respect on my name. Put some respect on my name. He had felt disrespected and he said, no, that's not who I am. I am worthy of your respect. The passage that we're going to look at tonight, if you could almost summarize it as God is calling out to Israel and specifically in this passage tonight to the priests of Israel. And he's saying, put some respect on my name. Put some respect on who I am to you. And so in Malachi, we're still in chapter one tonight as we're gonna jump in Malachi chapter one. And tonight we're gonna look at starting at verse six. It says this, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So this verse here, verse six, sets up the rest of the passage that we're going to look at tonight, which is the rest of chapter one and then the first half of chapter two. We talked about last week, so this, the book of Malachi is structured as what as scholars call rhetorical disputations. And so a statement is made, the kind of rhetorical question is argued back, right, which we see here, how have we done this? And the rest of the passage basically explains this accusation that the prophet makes to the people. And here he starts with this parallel, right? A son honors his father and a servant honors his master. Those were given things in Israelite society. And then the, the, the parallel is made. God is seen as the father to his people Israel. This is seen throughout the Old Testament from the very beginning that God was as a father to his children. So was Israel to God. Not only that, but he was to be their master or a word even more commonly in the the Bible, the word Lord. That he was to be the Lord of them, their master over them. 
And so just as a father or a master was worthy of honor and respect, so God was. But he says, you are not giving it to me. And this idea that that brings this whole passage together tonight is this idea of fearing God. The fear of God. And that is not used in how we would often talk about being afraid of someone or fearful of someone. But the fear of God is a reverential awe towards him. A reverential awe towards God. And the fear of the Lord is all throughout scripture as such an important thing for a follower of God to understand in their lives. Just a few things that the the fear of the Lord is key to. The fear of the Lord is key to knowledge. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is essential for wisdom. Psalm chapter 11 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. The fear of the Lord is necessary for confidence in this life. Proverbs 14, 26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children have a refuge. And the fear of the Lord is essential to life itself. Proverbs 19, 23, The fear of the Lord leads to life, the life that God has for us. And whoever has it rests satisfied. And so God has called his people, God has called Israel and the priests of Israel to fear him, to have a reverential awe towards him, just as they would towards any father or master. But they despise God's name. They have despised him. And as the the preacher A.W. Tozer has said, when men no longer fear God, they transgress his laws without hesitation The fear of consequences is no deterrent when the fear of God is gone. And so tonight we're going to look at the ways that these priests did not fear God. And as we do, our outline for tonight is three ways for us to keep the fear of God. My hope is that we will learn from their mistakes and that we will guard our hearts, that we will guard our lives from these things. So verse 7 says this. How have we despised your name? Verse seven, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is not that evil? Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord God of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. He will show us favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. It's clear here from the pre-sacrifices that it was impure. Unclean sacrifices were being offered upon the altar. Blind animals, things that the Old Testament clearly said, these are not offerings that they are to bring. These sacrifices not only defiled the altar, but in the worship, they were to defile the God that they were offered to. And to help them understand this, he helps them see in verse 8, he says, listen, if you were to give this same gift, the things that you say you are giving me in worship, if you were to give this to your governor, to the ruler over you, 
he would not be accepted by it. He, he would despise it. It is not an appropriate gift. And so he says, how, how would you think this is appropriate to give me if this wouldn't be appropriate to give your governor? Verse 9 is a verse that's just dripping with irony, right? He's, he's saying, you could call out to me. But if your sacrifices are, are like this, if you're not even trying, then, then it's not even worth it. Why would you do that? So the first thing we see in this passage, the first way to keep the fear of God is this, is do not be cavalier towards the creator. Do not be cavalier. Do not be so casual to, to take it so lightly that we can stand, that we can worship, that we can honor God. See, in the, for the priests, their sacrifices, their, excuse me, their attitude towards their sacrifices revealed their very attitude towards God. Their attitude towards the sacrifices revealed of their heart their attitude that they had towards God. It's, it's again, as we notice there in verse 8, I, I just have to, to stop there again, right? That, that you wouldn't present that to your governor. He would not accept and show you favor. What he's calling out in the priests is this, is that you have become so cavalier in your relationship with me that you fear the human rulers more than you fear your heavenly ruler. You fear those who have been placed in political power over you and you're not fearing me, the king of kings, who places all kings and rulers where they lie. See, the moment that we start to fear men, the moment that we would start to fear a political ruler more than we fear God, we are being cavalier towards the creator. This has always been a temptation. And even now, this next week, as we are just a day or two, a couple days away from a presidential transition, there has been so much in this political season that has revealed that in many of our hearts, we are more fearful of men we are more honoring to a political official than we are to God. Get this, this governor that he speaks of here in verse 8 could have been, we don't know. It could have even been Nehemiah that he's talking about. One who is divinely appointed by God to lead his people. And even then God's like, no way does he compare with me. If we fear a ruler more than we fear God, it shows that we are being cavalier towards him. So we need to not be cavalier. We need to not be so casual in our relationship with God. Several months ago, I was out visiting family and I went to a place that I had been several times before, five, six times, I'm not entirely sure. But it's a place that every time I have an option, every time it's, it's within what I would say driving distance and it's realistic for me to go there, I always want to go there. That place is the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon to me is just one of the most amazingly beautiful places in the entire world that I have ever been. It's not for me one of those places where I go once and I say, all right, check it off my bucket list, Grand Canyon, done, on to bigger and to better things. Because I look at it and I say, there's not much bigger or better than this. That's literally right why it's called the, the Grand Canyon. It, it is amazing. And the words that people use to describe such amazing natural beauties, words like, like grandeur, 
or, or to look at the majesty of the, the wildlife in the canyon around us. Why do I love going back there over and over again? Because it never ceases to amaze me, to draw me in at how great and how vast it actually is. And I don't know, I, I don't get to visit often, but I don't think I would ever be just like, oh look, it's, it's a big hole in the ground. There's a little river at the bottom. Cool, big deal. No, because the greatness of it draws you in and you have to stand in amazement. So much more so is the greatness of our God. So much more so is the greatness of our God. We should never cease to marvel at his greatness, at his grandeur, at his majesty in the world. See, so often like these priests had, they allowed their, their knowledge, the, the intimacy that they had with God just kind of led them to be indifferent towards God. Their familiarity with him led them astray and they lost sight of the grandeur of God. So slow down. Don't be so distracted all the time. Remember who this God is that we worship and serve. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe. Every living thing you see was created by him and for him and through him. The fact that you woke up today is because he rules and reigns over all things. Just stop, regularly stop yourself in life and reflect on the greatness of God. And to not allow an attitude of, ah, oh, well, okay, it's God. I get to approach him in prayer, oh, okay, no. Our hearts need to be captured, need to be drawn in regularly by the greatness of God. He continues here in verse 10. He says this, Oh, that there were, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will, will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations." He starts off this section in verse 10 talking about that, that the doors would be shut and so worship could no longer be, be offered. That is an astoundingly strong statement. Remember, this is a prophet who ministers just after the exile. The people had been taken out of the land, are just now back in. The temple has just been rebuilt. And God says, listen, this worthless worship that you're bringing to me is so repulsive. I would rather the temple doors be slammed shut that you not even been able to go in there, then do you bring these things before me? 
Verse 11 talks about that the rising of the sun. So, so he's insulting them. He's saying, Israel, you aren't worshiping me, but one day the whole world will. This isn't a call for, for universalism as some try and twist it to say that any prayer is actually to this God of the Bible. No, it's a, it's a looking forward to, to what will happen when Jesus comes when all nations will worship him. And it ultimately looks forward to the heavenly picture as people from all nations and tribes and tongues gather around the throne. But his people, Israel, are missing it. He's saying the whole world will see it, but how are you missing it? In verse 13, we get a glimpse into the priest's heart as they gather to offer sacrifices. It's, it's something that you could picture them utter under their breath. What a weariness this is. Back again. This is so tiring. This is so boring. Just another thing to do as they snort, as they sigh on the tasks that they have to carry out. God says, how dare you treat me like that? How dare you intentionally take what is blemished and lame and sick and offer it to me? And he switches there at the end of the chapter in verse 14. I love that last, that last phrase, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. It's not an accident here that he moves from talking about a father and master and he reminds them at the end, I am your king, the king of you, the king of the whole world. I am worthy of your reverence, of your fear of your honor. The second, the second way to keep the fear of God in our lives is that we do not allow ritual to replace relationship. That we do not allow the ritual of worship to replace relationship with God. See, it's clear here that these priests were still doing some of the right things. They were still offering sacrifices. They were still going to the temple. They were still on the outward appearance doing the right things. But inwardly, we, we get a glimpse into their hearts that, that it's so corrupt. It's so empty. See, the ritual of just performing the right things had replaced a vivid and loving and growing relationship with God. In all of life, going through the motions kind of putting life on autopilot is a constant temptation to us. So, so we do this in so many areas of life in which we find a measure of comfort. Is it's easy for us to kind of click it into autopilot, right? That we don't even really think, that we don't even dwell on things anymore, but we just kind of go through things. There, there was a study done a few years ago into car crashes, car accidents, and it looked more in depth to that idea, which is true, and they found it to be true, that the large majority of car accidents actually take place within five miles of your house. And you might say, well, that's probably because you drive the most within five miles of your house. But when they started to wait and get into study, they said, well, it's a lot more than just that. Even when you compare it to other trips, it's drastically weighted. So people get in accidents way more so when they are within five miles of their homes. They broke it down, male, female, older, like it, it, everyone was like that except for one group. There was only one group of people to which this rule didn't apply. And that's what they called novice drivers. 
or first timers who had never driven anywhere before and were just starting out, they were the only ones who weren't more likely to get in an accident closer to their home. And the study concluded that it, it, the reason that this is, is because in surroundings that we're comfortable with, complacency and familiarity start to creep in and we actually put our lives in danger. I know this happened to me in the car. You end up at home and you're like, how did I get here? I know I was driving, but I don't remember going down the highway or getting off, going through those stoplights and stop signs that we just kind of go through the motions of life. You see this happening in relationships with each other. Have you met people? Have you heard of stories? Hopefully it's not true in your life, but maybe it is of people in a marriage who just stop focusing on each other and just start going through life together. And it's not a big event. It's not a big fight. It's nothing wrong. But suddenly they wake up one day and realize, man, we've, we've drifted apart. We've drifted apart. The routines of life, the ritual of life has robbed us of the relationship that we have. We went into autopilot and we stopped being intentional towards each other. This is always a danger for us to happen in our relationship with God. That we can just go into autopilot. That we can just get into the routines that we've set up in our life of what it means to follow after God. Now there are certain habits, there are certain routines, there are certain, even if you want to call them rituals, that are important for us as followers of Jesus. Having good habits is an important thing. I'm not arguing against that. But here's what I want all of us to think about, no matter how good our habits are, no matter how consistent we are in worship, in prayer, in Bible study, for all of us, we need to make sure the routines of our spiritual life never, never become just a ritual. That the routines of our lives never become just a ritual that we go through. See, God argues so strongly in this passage, shut the doors. I would rather you not bring anything at all. What he's saying is this, is that insincere worship is an insult to God. Insincere worship is an insult to God. When we go through the motions, when we just show up and do what we've always done and our hearts aren't in it, it is an insult to the living God. It shows that the fear of God is not in our lives. You know, in every difficult and hard situation, we can always find good and we can always find things to learn and to grow. And my prayer for us is that in this season in which our routines, our rituals are kind of all off, Right? I'm preaching right now in an empty sanctuary and you're not here sitting here. We just didn't stand together corporately in worship. So many of the routines that we've ingrained into our lives are off. Maybe one of the things that God is trying to remind you, trying to remind me of in this season right now, is that the routines of worship aren't what he wants. He wants our hearts. He wants that relationship with us. And my hope and my prayer for us is as our routines have gotten upset over the last year, that maybe it's helped us to see and to refocus on that relationship. That it's not just showing up into a physical building that God wants from us. He wants our hearts. He wants a relationship with us. So we never should be insincere in worship for that is an insult to the living God. 
Chapter 2 continues his address towards the priests and he begins to shift his focus from offering sacrifices to now their, their role as the teachers before Israel. And he says this in verse 1, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. He is warning them there are huge consequences for your actions. Disobedience has huge consequences. And this is in the Old Testament all the way through. When we look back, especially at the book of Deuteronomy, he lays it out clearly. Obedience leads to blessings and disobedient will lead to punishment. And he's saying this is still true. The people had just come back from exile, but apparently even their leaders, the priests, hadn't entirely learned the lesson yet. They hadn't learned that God is after the heart. He says it multiple times there. Do you see it? If, if you will not take it to heart, if you will not allow the inner transformation of a relationship with God to transform you, then, then I don't want it. The consequences here are spread even to their children. Verse 3, I will rebuke your, your offspring. That's shocking to us in kind of this individualistic Western mindset that we have. But it's a reminder that, that when we dishonor God, when we walk away from him, sin may start with us as individuals, but it never ends with us. Your sin always spreads. Your sin almost always has consequences outside yourself. And so in verse 3, he, he tells them, I will rebuke you and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you will be taken away with it. In verse 3 sounds utterly repulsive, you're reading it correctly. If that just sounds disgusting, you are getting exactly correct what God is saying here. The dung of your offerings I will throw on your face. I will throw you out, out of the temple. You will be unclean. You will leave my presence because you do not honor, you do not fear me. His call out is still for mercy though. If you notice that, it says, if you won't, please come back. But if you won't, this is what will happen. So now he contrasts them. He starts to give a contrast in the closing arguments of what the priesthood was versus what it has become. So starting at what it was in verse four. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him, this is going back to the original covenant God made with the priesthood, was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Those two words are often used separately throughout scripture, that he feared me, stood in awe. This is the only place in scripture that these two words are combined together to talk about a response. It literally means that, that the, the priesthood melted inside because their hearts were so moved by God that they melted inside. He says, verse six, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many people from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of 
hosts. These priests had once walked in peace and uprightness. Notice that one of their huge role is is a teaching role. And that their their teaching was described by by teaching the truth, by instructing those. Their teaching was one that at the end of verse 6 had turned people away from their iniquity, had caused people to walk away from sin and to walk back towards the living God. That's the heart of what God called this priesthood to. So what has it become? Verse 8. But you, you've turned aside from the way. Contrasted with walking in the way of life and peace, you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instructions. Rather than leading them away from sin, he's saying you're leading them into sin because of what you're saying. You have corrupted the covenants of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Rather than having true instruction, as it was in verse 6 coming from their mouths, it's partiality. They're not saying all of what God wants to say. They're twisting the truth to fit their own needs, their own agenda. The third way to keep the fear of God in our lives that we can learn from this passage is that we should not trifle with the truth. Do not trifle with the truth of God's word. The section focused on this role that the the priests had in the teaching of God's people. The warning here is specifically for them. And we don't know what truth it was that they were compromising. It's one of those things that the people who received it, these priests, the Israelites, they obviously knew, right? And so he doesn't specify exactly how, exactly what they had been teaching that was not truthful to what God had said. And I think it's a reminder though for us that in every time, in every season, there is always a temptation to compromise the truth towards cultural relevancy, to water down the truth of what God says to fit in with ourselves, to fit in with the world around us. There's a temptation to compromise the truth of what God says to fit in to how we want to live our lives. And so he calls on the priest to repent, to turn away from this twisting the truth of what God has says, but to go back to the truth of scripture that he has revealed to them. So the first and the clearest application of this passage is obviously for those of us who are in church leadership, who have the awesome blessing and responsibility and privilege it is to open God's word and to teach, but that the truth be what we proclaim. That we would not twist scripture to our own thoughts, twist scripture to fit our agenda, that we would not twist scripture to fit in with the world, that we would not twist scripture to allow for sin in our own lives. So that first application is clearly for anyone in church leadership who leads God's people and opens up God's word before them. And even as I was thinking about this, each and every one of us have people that we influence, that we influence and how we handle the truth of God's word influences the people around us. Parents, how you handle God's word influences your children. It influences your relationships with your friends, with your coworkers. It influences your relationship with your roommate. How we see God's word and if we take God's truth to heart and live it out 
it has consequences. And so it's a reminder for us that we should be using our influence to lead people towards Jesus, to focus on the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, no matter how difficult that may be in certain seasons. But we should not mess with the truth, not trifle with what God has said or revealed, but that we should always use any influence we have with others to point them to Jesus. See, this passage here is a wake-up call. It's a reminder to us that if we do not fear God, we will not have a vibrant relationship with him. If we don't fear God, we will not have a vibrant and growing relationship with him. See, how should it have worked? What does God's word say? How should it have worked for these priests? How should it have worked for the people? See, it should have looked like this. The fear of God, the reverential awe of God should have led to the love of God, which then leads to devotion to God. The reverential awe, the fear of God should have moved their hearts as they beheld the greatness of God to love him, to love him with all they are, all that they have. And out of the overflow of this loving relationship with God, it should have moved them to a full-hearted devotion to God in every single thing. That's what God wants from us, that the fear of God would lead to the love of God and then lead to devotion to God. And the fear of God is fundamental to all of this. We've seen here a wake-up call the devastating things that God has to say when we forget who he is, when we just go through the motions of worship, when we approach him in a cavalier way. So my challenge to us tonight, my challenge to us this week, however it looks in your life, in your schedule, is take time. If if you're able to do it tonight, take time just to remember who God is. Take time to remember his majesty, his greatness. Get outside, look around at what he's made. Read scripture passages and stories and psalms that remind you of the greatness of God. That the fear of the Lord would take hold of our hearts. That we would never go through the motions, but that our hearts would respond in full worship and devotion and love to God due to the reverential awe that we owe him. God, we do thank you that you are so worthy of all that we have, all that we are. You are a God who deserves to be feared. You are worthy of the reverential awe to which you call us to. God, for those of us tonight who who haven't been taking you seriously, whose worship has just become a ritual, a routine of our lives, Would you wake us up tonight? Would you draw our hearts back and towards you tonight? Would your spirit open our hearts and our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.